It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was made when Cyrenus was the governor of Syria. And it all went, and all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth while her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. For you today, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Beth. You can be seated. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. It is so good to see you, so good to have you with us. For those of you who are regular with us, we're so glad to see you, to be able to spend this morning with you. And for those of you who are visiting, we're so glad that you decided to join us today. So thanks so much for being here. My name is Jonathan Mosier, um, and we are so appreciative that you're here on a brisk uh, brisk morning. It actually looks like we may potentially have a white Christmas, so we'll see how that plays out. But we are glad, nonetheless, that you're here today. Uh, I don't know what your Christmas traditions are in your family. My guess is if we were to go around the room and begin to ask people, what are the things that you do that are unique to your family, we'd have answers that are as varied as the number of people in this room. But at least for us in our home, in the Mosier home, um, one of the traditions for us is the Christmas movies that are pretty much continually on repeat, starting the day after Thanksgiving all the way through New Year's. And Christmas movies are one of those things that incite all kinds of emotions in the hearts and the minds of individual people. So for some of you, you love the classics. It's not Christmas unless you've sat down and watched Miracle on 34th Street or It's a Wonderful Life or some movie like that. Others of you, you're just a sucker for the syrupy nonsense that defines the Hallmark Christmas special, right? And that's not an insult, by the way. If you like those movies, you know that that's the reason you keep coming back is for the syrupy nonsense. It's the whole reason that that channel exists as far as I can tell. In our home, we love the Charlie Brown Christmas special and particularly the, part, the, the reading of, of Linus as he starts reading through the passage that we just had read for us. We love everything from that to Home Alone to Elf. Our kids at any given point could probably quote most of those movies to you. And we won't even get into the arguments this morning surrounding whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Because there is no argument, it is a Christmas movie. John McClane defeats terrorists and saves Christmas. 
But regardless of which stories you prefer around this time of year, the one theme that all of our modern Christmas stories have in common is this idea that people are coming out of the darkness into the light. People are finding joy, they're finding a deep inner peace, they're finding some sort of some sort of salvation, usually from within, as they discover the true meaning of Christmas. So we think about, we think about Scrooge and, and how his heart shifts in realization of what the Christmas story is all about and ultimately what it means for those that are around him. He goes from being this miserly old man to being a very generous person. We think about the Grinch and his heart growing three sizes larger. We think about Kevin McAllister finally discovering that in fact he does love his family and that he's glad that they're around for Christmas. But the true Christmas story reveals something very different. It isn't the story of people finding light within themselves and leaving the darkness. It's, it's the idea of what we've been talking about with Advent, that the light of Christ came into the darkness of this world. And it's what the prophet Isaiah had predicted some 700 years before the birth of Jesus when he wrote this, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That God himself steps into history, that he steps into time, that he steps into the darkness of this world and the darkness of our own hearts in order to bring us light. See, without Jesus, all of those Christmas stories, as fun and as entertaining and as sentimental as they may be, all of those stories are at best inspirational stories that promote temporary moral improvement. But if if this Christmas story is true, if Luke chapter 2 is not just one more story on top of the pile of Christmas stories, but if in fact it is recorded history for us, then everything is different. So the question before us then is this, how does the gift of Jesus break through the darkness of this world? And the answer that we find in this text is that it does so in a most unexpected way. We find that theme in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8 where it says, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And everything about this is unusual. The characters are involved are unusual. The manner in which things occur is unusual. Usually when people are in darkness is when they find themselves most afraid. But these shepherds were used to the darkness. They were used to dark and cold nights. And the fear comes upon their souls when angels appear to them declaring a message. It's amazing that the announcement of Jesus' birth came first to shepherds. Not to the religious elite, not to the kings and rulers, but to poor, lowly shepherds in a field. And those shepherds really represent the condition of all of our hearts without Jesus. They were societal outcasts by virtue of the filthy job that they held. And they were religious outcasts because their jobs actually kept them from being able to participate in the temple services. In other words, these are sinful, irreligious people who made no pretense of being able to save themselves. They were the lowliest of the low. And God invades the darkness of this world and the darkness of their own hearts to bring the light of grace into the lives of sinners. 
verse 4, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, that taxed word actually means counted, with Mary, his espoused wife, who was great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Imagine the situation in which Joseph and Mary find themselves. Mary is pregnant. She's approaching the end of her pregnancy. She's ready to give birth. She's been miraculously, uh, she, she has this miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. And here she is with her fiance, Joseph, who had remained faithful to her and cared for her and loved her. And they're heading back to his hometown, Bethlehem, for this census. Mary and Joseph were were poor people and they could find no place to stay. And what's interesting about this text is that in this culture, family was everything. Family was everything to these people. And the custom was when you returned home, you would find some relative close or distant who would open up their doors for you. And so when it says here that there was no room in the inn, the word inn is actually the word guest room. In other words, it's fair to even potentially presume that not not only were there no rental facilities available for Mary and Joseph, but that in fact Joseph's own family wouldn't open their doors to him because of Mary's pregnancy. So they find a stable. And the newborn Jesus is laid in a feeding trough. And we have a tendency to sentimentalize that picture, right? We, we think of the soft glowing hay and Jesus wrapped loosely that Jesus is laid in a rough-hewn wooden feed trough where animals had just been eating probably moments before he was laid, where filthy animals and sturdy straw were all around him. And yet this is how the gift of God appeared, as a baby born into poverty. And what's striking is how different this picture is than every other time that we see God appearing to men uh, throughout Scripture. Because whenever God appears previously, He appears as a smoking furnace to Abraham, as a blazing tree to Moses, as a tornado to Job, as a pillar of fire to the children of Israel. But here, He appears as an infant. I have a 10-month-old daughter, and so for the last 10 months we've been and holding her and feeding her and watching her grow and watching her get bigger. And I can tell you personally, there is nothing that is more accessible and less intimidating than a baby. They are completely vulnerable and dependent. And this is how the light came into the darkness. That Jesus Christ the Son of God with all of His glory and all of His beauty and all of His majesty has become an infant. And notice the timing of when he came. Luke 2 verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed or registered. In this brief reference, what we see is our own hearts reflected in the person of Caesar Augustus. See, Caesar called for this counting because he wanted to show his own significance. He wanted the whole existing world to know who he was and to know his fame. He wanted to make sure that his name never died out. He wanted himself to be remembered throughout all of history. And so he called for this great accounting that every one of his subjects in all the realms of his kingdom should be counted and, and one large tally should be made so that he could know everyone who was under his authority. 
See, Caesar is a reflection of the darkness of our own hearts. We naturally act exactly the same way. We try to establish our significance and our worth and our value and our happiness by achieving power and influence and money and popularity. See, we all want our lives to be meaningful and worthwhile. We go after the things that we think will make us happy. And ultimately, what we're chasing in those moments is self-salvation. How can I provide meaning and an everlastingness to my name? We want to be recognized and rewarded. And at some level, we are all naturally pursuing meaning in those things. But unlike Caesar, God operates in ways that we wouldn't expect. As Caesar calls for this census, what he didn't know was that the true ruler of the world was preparing to show everyone how powerful he was. That God was going to use this moment to bring about the fulfillment of the promises he had made generations earlier. It was the arrogance of Caesar that ushered in the true king of the world. And while Caesar was busy showing his power by counting all of his people, Jesus showed his power by becoming one of his people. And this is the contrast we see between God's way and man's way. Because Jesus' humble beginnings would lead him to a shameful ending. Because the same prophet, the prophet Isaiah, who had prophesied the birth of Jesus to the Virgin Mary, also said this about how Jesus' life would end. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. The same Jesus who was born into a rough wooden trough would later die on a rough wooden cross. The same Savior who was born among the animals would later be crucified among criminals. The same Jesus who had been rejected by family in Bethlehem would later be rejected by his own heavenly father. And he did all of that to pay the cost for your sins and for mine. See, Jesus was born to die. And in his death, he took the penalty that you deserved so that you could receive the acceptance that only he deserved. He was humbled so that you could receive his honor. He was made insignificant so that you could find your meaning. See, later this evening or tomorrow morning, most of us will open a gift of some kind or another. And the reason that Christians have historically exchanged gifts around Christmas is as a reminder of the greatest gift that was given to us. See, Jesus was given to bring you into a right relationship with him. 
that by means of his own death and resurrection, you would be united with Jesus Christ, that your righteousness would be found in him, that he, in fact, is your righteousness, your perfection, your goodness, that he is your performance, that he is your record. So if you know Jesus as Savior, here's what he promises you. He says that when God the Father sees you, he no longer sees the sinful, broken person that you once were, but rather he sees you in the very same way that he sees his own son, Jesus Christ, perfect and holy and righteous. See, not only was Jesus born into humility, and not only was he killed in shame, but he also rose again in glory. And in his resurrection, he made the down payment on the eternal life that he provides to you and to me, free of cost. See, like any good Christmas story, the ending was a surprise. We wouldn't have expected God to come at all. And if we had, we wouldn't have thought We wouldn't have thought to plan it the way that he planned it or to ordain it the way that he ordained it. But every detail of this story was sovereignly ordained to bring about the most amazing ending that we could hope for. That Jesus himself has broken through the darkness and has brought his marvelous light for you and for me. And that is what we celebrate on this day. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the greatest gift that you could have ever given us. We thank you that you broke through the darkness and brought the light to us. We thank you that you have offered us the release from our own pursuits for significance and salvation and delivered to us more than we could have ever asked for. And so, Father, as we consider the coming of Jesus Christ, would we see him as he is? That Jesus then is beautiful in heaven, beautiful on earth, beautiful in the womb, beautiful in his parents' arms, beautiful in his miracles, beautiful under the scourge, beautiful when inviting to life, beautiful in laying down his life, beautiful in taking it up again, beautiful on the cross, beautiful in the grave, beautiful once again in heaven. And may the beauty and the wonder of the Lord Jesus be our last thought this evening and our first thought tomorrow. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.